I want to ask you a rhetorical question. I want to make sure that's clear as I start this. Who comes to mind when you hear the word fool? I didn't want anybody shouting out names or some of us might be embarrassed. Who comes to mind when you hear the word fool? Maybe they come to your mind because of the kind of clothes they wear or kind of music they listen to, maybe because of the food that they eat or maybe don't eat. Maybe it's because of their political views. Maybe it's because of a theological perspective they have. I find that when we start thinking of people in those terms, it seems like most of the time those people who come to mind are people who think differently than we do. They're people who have different views than we have, who see things differently than we see them. And so we tend to think, why in the world would they do that? Why in the world would they think like that? Why in the world would they get behind that candidate or have that theological position? And somewhere in our minds, maybe we don't say it out loud, but we're thinking, that's pretty foolish. It usually comes from a self-centered perspective. And maybe that's why Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount not to call people fools. Because all it does is reveal the bad stuff in our hearts. Which is what surprises me that as we begin Psalm 53, right off the bat, David talks about fools. This is an interesting psalm. We have 150 psalms. And surely that does not encompass all of the psalms that were written and perhaps all of the music that Israel sang. But we have 150, a limited book of music that the Israelites used in worship. And what's fascinating to me is that you would think in that limited amount of, of limited number of songs that they would all be diverse. But Psalm 53 is actually almost verbatim Psalm, 1, Psalm 14. They're almost exactly the same with just a few variants throughout the Psalms. And that tells me how important this is. In the Hebrew language, they have no way, as we do with our computers, to bold something or to italicize something, to set it apart as important. So one of the ways in which they declare to readers this is important is repetition. And that's why when you read a lot of the Old Testament, you may wonder to yourself, why are they saying that again? Because they want to make sure we understand how important it is, that we get the point. And this is one of those psalms. Something about this psalm stands out that's important enough that it's repeated twice in the limited number of psalms that we have. And as David unfolds this psalm, he begins by saying, Only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They're corrupt, their actions are evil, not one of them does good. So what does it mean to be a fool? David says it's people who live as if they don't believe God exists. They live in such a way that that they don't believe that God cares about how they live. When you look at the book of Proverbs, there are fools and wise people and people that in some translations are called the simple. And the simple are really, for all intents and purposes, people who are ignorant of the truth. They don't really know exactly what the truth is. And it's interesting because in the book of Proverbs, God is pretty patient with the simple. 
But fools are people who know the truth and reject it. People who know the right ways to think and the right things to do and simply say, I don't want it. And God is not nearly as patient with them as he is with the simple. God is not nearly as understanding because these are people who know the truth and decide, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And you get a sense as I read Psalm 53 that David is saying the people who are fools are people who should know better. I mean, he says in verse 4, these are people, will they ever learn? Implying they know, they just don't want to do it. I don't know this for certain, no one does, but there's a lot of speculation that this psalm is connected to an incident in David's life. Psalm 52 is is, is says in the heading, this is a part, something from David's life. Psalm 54 says this is something from David's life. So you might maybe assume that Psalm 53 is as well, even though it doesn't specifically say that. And if it does, it probably references an incident from 1 Samuel 25. This is a story of David and his 600 men who are on the run from Saul. And they are in, they're hungry, they're in need of provisions. And they come upon uh, some men who are shearing sheep. A lot of sheep. And they discover, they know these guys because they have been around them before. And in fact, David's men have protected them and cared for them earlier in earlier times. And so they go to them and say, look, we really need some help here. We need some food. We need some provisions. We need some stuff to keep us going. Could you go ask your master if we can have some things? And so they say, sure. So this, so actually David sends this group of guys to them, to uh, the man who owns all of this. And he says, a man named Nabal. And they say, look, here, we'd like to know if we could get some provisions from you. You're fixing all this food for all these people who are shearing sheep. And he had thousands of sheep and thousands of, of uh, animals. And he said, look, give us a little bit of that. I mean, we protected your men when they were in trouble. We made sure nothing happened to them. And Nabal says, get out of here. Who's David. Why would I help David? I don't care about David. David means nothing to me. Forget David. I'm not giving him anything. And so the guys go back to David and they say, here's what he said. And David says, men, strap on your swords. We're going to go get some vengeance. Nobody's going to treat me like that. Here's the interesting thing about that story. When David, after David is ready to fight... Nabal's wife, Abigail, hears about what he's done and she gets together a lot of stuff and sends it to David and she follows it and gets in front of David and bows down and says, I'm so sorry, this is all my fault. Please don't do this that you're thinking of doing um, because my husband is certainly well-named because the word Nabal means fool. It's the same word that's used here in Psalm 53. Now, I've been thinking about that if his parents named him that, man, that is brutal, right? I mean, really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, no wonder he's surly all of his life. I wonder, though, if maybe it's a nickname. Maybe it's a nickname for, for someone who lives so foolishly that everyone just calls him that. I don't know. But something in David, is thinking, I think he's thinking about that event when he writes this psalm. And as people are listening to this, David's words, they're singing these words in, in their worship, you can almost see the people going, yeah, I certainly know a lot of those kind of fools. I know these people. They're terrible. 
They don't think anything about God. They don't do the things that we do. And you can almost feel the self-righteousness beginning to rise up in them until they sing verses 2 and 3. And in verses 2 and 3, David says, God looks down from heaven, not just on the people who are fools, but the entire human race. And he looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God, but no, all have turned away, all have become corrupt, no one does good, not even a single one. Now, I suspect there's a little hyperbole in that. Surely there's somebody who does some good. But I think David is making the point, before you get too high and mighty about yourself, Look in your own heart. Look at your own life. Are there ever times when the things that you do would send a message to people that you don't really believe God exists? Is there anything that you do that might send a message to people that says you believe God doesn't really care how you act? When he talks about the fact that fools say in their hearts, there is no God. These aren't people going around saying, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. But how they live the way, and primarily in the psalm, the way they treat people. Taking advantage of the vulnerable. The words used in in verse 4 are, they devour them. Do we ever do that too? Do we ever run ahead of God and act as if the only way that this is going to be solved is if we do it? Because I don't think God's going to. In the way that we treat people, do we ever give people the impression that we really don't think God cares how we treat people, what we do? I think this is also tied into, this may even be more a part of what David writes about from 1 Samuel 25. Because after Abigail says to David, don't do this. David says, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder. And from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. All of a sudden, David realizes, I'm doing what is only something God should do. I'm acting in a way that says, I don't really believe God can handle this circumstance, so I better do it. And David, I think, is taken back at how susceptible he is to thinking and acting like a fool. And let's be honest. We are all susceptible to thinking like fools. The temptation is always in front of us to treat people in a way that would cause others to say, they must not really think God is who he says he is. You know, we, we sometimes feel so positive about how righteous we are and the righteousness of our cause and the righteousness of what we believe, that there is something in the back of our minds that's saying to us, it doesn't matter if you have to trample over people to get to that. The end justifies the means. The cause is right. It's good. It's important. So if we have to bend a few things, if we have to tell a few lies, if we have to, if we have to trample over a few people to get to it, that's okay because the end is right. I mean, isn't that much of the political spectrum? You know, people enter a political race because they want to do good. 
they they want to they want to to see the world change. They want to do things for better. They want to make people's lives better. They want to help people. And then advisors say to them, "Now you realize if you're going to accomplish that, you have to get elected. In order to get elected, you're going to have to let go of this naivete of how things are run. You're going to have to you're going to have to promise things to people that you know you'll never do. You're going to have to you're going to have to, to besmirch the reputation of other people, even though what you're saying might not be exactly the truth. But it's okay because it's the only way you can get elected in order to do these good things. And I can't even imagine how tempting it is to be in the political realm and, and to have that facing you. But even in the church and as followers of Jesus, we are continually confronted with that temptation that our cause is right, our cause is just, what we're doing is good. So if we have to leave a few people in our wake, in the carnage of people in our wake, well, that's what happens sometimes. And David is saying to us, that's not how the kingdom of Yahweh works. The process, the journey, the means is every bit as important as the end. It's one of the things that sets us apart as followers of God from people who follow other gods. And so David says, if you want to be that kind of person, if you want to be that kind of church, if you want to be God's people like that, then it means you need to be wise instead of foolish. And the first step in being wise, he says, really the step in being wise is seeking God. God looks over the earth and he says, is there anybody here who seeks me? Anybody who's wise? He says then in verse 4 that people who are wise, people who seek him, are people who pray to him. And inherit in prayer is acknowledging a need for God. I think one of the most important things we can do, one of the most important mindsets and attitudes that leads to wisdom is acknowledging that we need God. It is always the first step, the first place. You think about any 12-step program, it always starts with acknowledging our need. And so you come to the meeting, you stand up and say, I'm Wes, I'm a fool. No comments from you, I see you smiling. But you don't just do that once. Every meeting you attend, every time you stand up to say something, Hi, I'm Wes. I'm a fool. I am needy. I am helpless. It is a foundation, not just of salvation, but the foundation of all of the journey with Christ. I, I am convinced that it is in many ways the heart of what it means to be holy. Holy people are not people who say, I'm good enough that I don't need God anymore. Holy people are the ones who more than anyone else say, I can't do anything without God. And that openness is what allows the Spirit to fill them. It is the starting place for us. Jesus confronts this continually with the people in the Gospels. And in, in this passage we read earlier, Levi or Matthew is, you know, a tax collector is despised. Jesus comes along and says, hey, you come follow me. And he says, okay. 
And he goes and follows him, and he learns a little bit about Jesus, and so he throws a dinner party, and he invites all of his other despised tax collector friends and other people that, the, that people would call sinners. And they're all eating with Jesus, and the Pharisees come along and pull aside Jesus' disciples and say, hey, why is your, why is your master eating with this scum? That's one of the translations. And Jesus overhears them and says, look, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, it's the sick. I have come to help people who want help. And the Pharisees walk away because they don't think they need any help. And the tax collectors and the sinners walk away justified, restored, redeemed, because they know they need help. That's the foundation of what it means to be wise. That mindset will go a long ways to keeping us from from doing foolish things, from acting and living in such a way and thinking in such a way that, that maybe people would think God doesn't really care. And of course, that leads us to behavior because how we think always leads to how we act. And how we act is always rooted in how we think. And it means that we treat people the way God does, particularly the vulnerable, the weak, outcasts. Instead of manipulating them, we sacrifice for them. Instead of trying to use them for our own means, we give up our own rights for their good. And what people in our culture, as they did in that culture, would look at that and say, that's foolish. God says, that's wisdom. And see, that's one of the problems we encounter with all of this, is that when you look around, and I think Israel would do the same thing, David did the same thing. When you look around, people who are foolish tend to be successful. I mean, here's David on the run, trying to keep himself alive with a few men with him. And he encounters Nabal, who's got thousands of animals and owns all this land and wealth beyond his imagination. And David must be looking at that and thinking, wait a second. The fool's successful. We find out as the story progresses that God sends a different message. But we live in a world in which so often people who live as if God doesn't exist, people who live as if God doesn't care, do seem to be successful. They seem to have power. They seem to have influence. They seem to have the things that the way in which this world judges success, they seem to have it. And it's discouraging, to be frank. Because we're trying to do what's right. We're trying to be wise. We're trying to live in a way that, that reflects who God is. And it feels like they are successful and, and we're not. Look around the world. So many places of the world. We pray for the persecuted church every Sunday. And in many of those countries, all of those countries probably, if you were to judge who's successful and who's not, It would not be the Christians who are looked on as successful. And it's discouraging. And that's why David adds verses 5 and 6. As he says in verse 5, The day is coming when the God of justice 
will do what's right. The day is coming when those who have terrorized will be terrorized. The day is coming when those who devour will be devoured. And God will set everything right. Count on it. You may not see it. We may not see it in our lifetime. We may not get that kind of of, uh, redemption that we want from people. But that's not really our problem. God will do what is right. And we have to trust him. The other side of that is that David says in verse 6, Oh, if, if only someone would come from Zion to restore God's people. And you might expect, as I think Israel might, that David's next words would be, And here I am. David's been anointed the king. David has been anointed the, the one who's going, God's chosen one. He has been, he's been anointed to be the rescuer of Israel. And here he is. But David doesn't say that. His next words are, when God restores his people. No one knows better than David that he doesn't have enough in himself to do this. And every time he thinks he does, it ends in disaster. It is God who restores and redeems. It is God who creates such an atmosphere of joyful flourishing That is, people in the midst of times when it looks like the fools are winning can step back and see something different. In many ways, it is the message of the book of Revelation to the persecuted church. The word of John is the day is coming. Jesus has won. The day is coming. And David gives us a precursor of that. And the underlying message is, you may not see it, we may not experience it, but you can trust God that it's true. And that really is David's ultimate word in this psalm. Despite what things look like, despite the upside-down nature of the world, you can trust God. And to live your life in such a way that it reflects to people that you believe God exists and that God cares and that God is in control and that God is trustworthy is always the right, wise way to live. And in many ways, that's the message of this table. At this table, we come and acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our need for God. And it is a table of lamenting. But it's also a table of celebration and joy. Because the one to whom we come is good. And he's merciful. And he's trustworthy. And so even as we come to this table, we come saying, Lord, I need you. And we come saying, Lord, thank you. And we declare with our hearts that we believe God is who he says he is. So as you think about a circumstance, maybe in your life, maybe in the world at large, maybe it's a a person, whatever it may be. 
something that is discouraging you about this world, something that is causing you to feel like, man, everything is upside down and I don't know where it's headed. Can we together, individually and corporately declare, we may not see the end, we may not understand it, but we believe that God is who he says he is. And we're going to live our lives declaring that is true. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that as we come to this table, we do acknowledge our need of you. And we come and finding your arms open wide to receive us and to redeem us and to restore us. So, Father, give us grace to live in such a way, to think in such a way, to treat others in such a way that declares we believe you are who you say you are. Father, pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup. May they be food to our souls and our hearts, our minds, every part of our being. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.